It is good to be with you on this Lord's Day morning. We are continuing our teaching series in Galatians called No Other Gospel. Last Sunday, we looked at Paul's concern and discouragement in chapter 4, verses 8 through 11, where the apostle admonished the Galatians who had come to know God and were known by God not to follow the teachings of the Judaizers, those false teachers who had infiltrated these churches, nor to return to the worthless elementary principles of the world, you know, the false religion of works righteousness. And at the end, in verse 11, Paul said something kind of shocking, didn't he? he? He says, I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. I, I'm a bit fearful that I've wasted my time with you and on you. And uh, we talked about how every faithful minister of the gospel has felt like Paul did in that moment. When the, the people we love and serve and teach either turn against us or go back to the worthless elementary principles of this world or disconnect from our congregations and disappear without a trace or act obstinate and unrepentant when their sin is lovingly exposed, what can happen? Discouragement can creep in, and that question can enter our minds. I fear that I have labored over them in vain. And we learned that the answer to that question, because really that's what it is, have I labored over you in vain, is what Paul asks. And we learned the answer to the question is, not if we have labored over them in the Word of God. Not if we have taught them the gospel. Why? Because the Word of God, the gospel, never returns void. It always accomplishes God's purposes. It saves, it sanctifies, it hardens, it chastens, it guides, it makes the man or woman of God complete. It brings them maturity to maturity. If we give people the Word of God, our labor is not in vain. If we give them something else, like uh, psychology, psychiatry, uh, if we try to equip them to have their best life now, uh, if we uh, are about uh, teaching them how to help themselves or any of these sorts of things, or just sharing with them these worldly ideas, we are absolutely wasting our time and theirs. Now in the next section, Paul continues to speak from his heart. And he is he's desperate for the Galatians to come back to the true gospel. Because that's what they were running from now. They were running into this idea of, of trying to self-justify before God through their efforts. Through following whatever the Judaizers were telling them to follow. Circumcision and these sort of Jewish things and Jewish religious things. And he's desperate for them to come back to the gospel that he preached to them, that they embraced nearly two years earlier. Why? Because he loves them like a mother. He loves them like a, a faithful pastor would love the people that God has put in his charge. Uh, John MacArthur said this of this text. He said, um, 
These are the strongest words of personal affection Paul uses in any of his letters. That's the text that we have before us, and that's quite a statement. I've become pretty, uh, pretty sure of that statement, believing that it's truth after studying it. I have entitled this message, Paul's Impassioned Plea. And I'd like for you to take your Bibles and turn to Galatians 4. We'll be looking at verses 12 through 20. Paul's uh, impassioned plea. Be careful there. If you say that really fast, it's a tongue twister. Especially for me at 51 with not the brain power that I had at 31. Galatians 4, 12 to 20, I'd like to pray before we get to work. Uh, Gracious Heavenly Father, we ask that you help us now in our time of need. What is our need? Our need is that... We can understand and comprehend the truth in this text and that we can apply it, not just hear it, but apply it and live it out and submit to you. And we have, uh, there's a dullness to our minds and a distraction to our minds and these sorts of things. Lord knows I've been distracted over the last few weeks by various things, even discouraged to a degree, and I think that that's probably all of us. And so, Father, we ask that you help us in our time of need. Help to, to open our eyes and ears and hearts to the truth, to the word, and transform us through this time. May you be glorified during this time of teaching. Help us to understand Paul's impassioned plea and to apply the principles that are here in this scripture to our own lives. May we bring you glory during this time of teaching and every day. And we submit to you and pray in Christ's name. To pick up where we left off last Sunday, verse 12a. This is where we left off. Paul says in the next line, Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have, has be, I have become as you are. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. And this is a kind of a perplexing thing to say after what he said in the previous text, after he says, I think I've wasted my time on you. Uh, become a time waster. <laughs> yeah, that's not what he's saying. Basically, he's just entreating the Galatians to become as he is, to become like him. Remember, he's still holding fast to the gospel and to his Christian liberty. They're the ones that are wanting to forfeit it. The Greek word for entreat is an interesting one. It's deomai. And it basically means to beg, to beg. What, what is Paul doing here? He is begging, begging, literally begging and pleading with the Galatians to become as he is, to become like him. In what way? In the clarity of the gospel, a re-understanding of what the gospel is, because that's what they're deviating away from. Uh, become like I am in your understanding of the gospel, which you held at one time. Become like I am as, as a free man in Christ. This is what he's saying. Become like me in your gospel conviction that we are indeed justified by faith alone, not by any works, not by any of our own merit, but by the merits of Christ. This is what he's saying. John Stott wrote, 
following his agonized complaint that the Galatians were turning back to the old bondage from which Christ had redeemed them. This appeal can mean only one thing. Paul longed for them to become like him in his convictions about the truth as it is in Jesus and about the liberty with which Christ has made us free. Become like me a free man in Christ. I am not under the law. You are not under the law any longer. Be like me. Walk in grace. This is what he's saying. And the Judaizers, these false teachers who were in these churches, were really working night and day, as, as the devil does, to put the Galatians under the law, which is a type of bondage or slavery. And when we say law, we're talking about the commandments of God. We're talking about not necessarily the moral aspects of the law, which we're still, as Christians, bound by. We have to live moral lives according to God. That's what glorifies Him. But we're talking about the ceremonial things and the things that applied specifically to the nation of Israel, like circumcision and these other things. To go back under that kind of thinking, that kind of obedience to the law, is it's a type of incarceration. Because those who try to obey the law are required to obey all of it. God is not pleased with someone who just likes to obey one of the commandments. If you aim to obey one commandment, you must obey all of them. And then the idea there is that when you fail, you begin to realize you need the grace of Christ and you flee to Him. He is countering what the Judaizers are saying here. You were free men like me, now become as I am because you are ready to forfeit your freedom and go under the law as they've been telling you to do. And, and these Galatians, if anyone were to be honest, they would know that they cannot obey the whole law. But that's a trick of the devil, convincing them that they think they can. And what happens when, when you put yourself under the law of God? You become enslaved, and this quest, this quest to obey everything that God has commanded, it becomes your life goal. It's your entire focus. It's all you care about. It's all you focus on. It, it consumes your thoughts and your mind and your actions and your energies. If you were to study today's Orthodox Jews, uh, you would see this. You know, the guys with the, the curls that come down from their black hats and, and they run along their cheeks. Do not say this to, to make fun of them in any way. I just say that's, that's when I know I'm looking at an Orthodox Jew. That's what that symbolizes. That's a, a requirement is to somehow wear your hair like that. If you study them, you'll see that they spend all of their time focused on the law, trying to obey every jot and tittle. Literally, they, from the time they wake up, they try to obey it in their dreams. I don't know how you do that. My dreams, I, I, crazy. I was sliding into home plate this morning in a dream, won the game for the team. I have no idea where that came from. I am not in shape to play softball or baseball. <laughs> As you can see, I lost my beard. I had a rash on my face. I lost my beard, and it's revealed my 82 chins. There's no way I'm playing baseball, but somehow I won the game this morning at about 6 a.m., and I woke up fully charged and and ready to charge the mound and slide into home. And uh, these poor guys, these Orthodox Jews, they spend all of their time literally, you know, they, they can't perform work on Sundays, and so they will have people press the buttons on elevators for them because they consider pressing the floor button a work. 
They are consumed in every conceivable way with obeying the, the law. And uh, you have to ask yourself, what kind of life would that be? Wouldn't it be a type of bondage? That if that's what's on your mind at all time, and, and you're constantly worried and anxious over violating one thing over here or violating something over there, and, and what happens to you when you violate? I guess you have to start over. It's like losing on Pac-Man. Boo, boo, boo. They spend all of their time focused on these things. This is what legalistic people do. You know, there's a great many of them in churches that are just consumed with the law of God, and this is what they want to do. And I, I don't think that would be uh, much of a life. In fact, I, you know, I've spent probably a few more years as an unbelieving pagan living for myself than I have been as a, as a believer. And, and I think that, well, what life, if I had two options, would I live as a pagan completely oblivious to God and all these things and just do what I want? Or would I want to live in that kind of religion where I'm incarcerated to, the, to obeying everything? I would rather live as a pagan. Lost. And in the end, here's the terrifying thing. In the end, both go to hell. Both go to hell. The earner goes to hell just like the one who has no concept of God. It's a, a terrifying thought, and what we need to understand this morning is that true freedom is literally in Christ alone. It's in Christ alone. What did Christ himself say in John 8, 36? If the Son sets you free, you will be incarcerated by the law the rest of your life? No, you will be free indeed. In Christ, we are free from the law's oppressive system. This is what is taught in Galatians 5.1 and really the entire letter of Galatians. We are free from the power of sin, Romans 6.6. 6. We are free from the penalty of sin, Romans 6.18. And by the way, Romans 6 is a wonderful text to read on this freedom. We are free from Satan's control and manipulation and torments. We are free from the fear of death and death itself. Hebrews 2, 14 to 15. This is total and absolute literal freedom in Christ. We are free in Him. Those who are in Christ by grace through faith enjoy these freedoms. And the Galatians, quite frankly, enjoyed them until the Judaizers came along and deceived them. Paul is saying, come back to the, the freedom that is ours, brothers. I haven't given up my freedom by going back to the law. Follow my example. Be as I am. This is what he's saying. He's pleading with them. He's begging them to come back to their Christ-only freedom. Don't go back to prison. You've been liberated. The warden, by his own blood, has set you free. Don't go and... Clasp on that bondage and those chains and lock yourself back in that cell where you are consumed by the law of God and that's all you can focus on. And in the end, it doesn't even pay dividends because you can't obey it perfectly. This is what he's saying. When Paul wrote, uh, for I also have become as you are, he was basically saying and really trying to reason with them and be empathetic He's, he's really saying, I, I know what you're going through right now, and I've personally been there. This is what he's saying. 
The Galatians had undoubtedly suffered for the sake of Christ. There's no doubt. Uh, being a, a Christian in the first century was very dangerous, even deadly. As it still is in many parts of the world, there are, uh, be a Christian in Iran, be a Christian in parts of the Middle East, be a Christian in parts of Africa. It's very, very dangerous. And even deadly in some circumstances, it certainly was deadly in the first century. We've all heard of Nero and what he did to Christians, turning them into human candles by dipping them in tar and lighting them on fire as they slowly burned to death to light the Olympic Games. Very low viewership this year because of that. No, I wasn't because of that. The Judaizers were, were persecuting the Galatians for not following the law of Moses. The Judaizers were a weird hybrid of, yes, we have faith in Christ, but we also believe <clears throat> that's part of our justification, but the rest of our justification comes in when we obey the law of Moses. And this is literally the thinking of the Jews today. And so the Judaizers weren't just suggesting that the Galatians put themselves under the law. They were persecuting them for not following the law of Moses. And they were saying that if you're going to be a true Christian, you have to become like us. Obey the law and believe in Christ. And Paul is saying, be as I am. I'm not under the law. I'm only in Christ. And you know that the Judaizers, these false teachers, they were persecuting the Galatians for not following the law of Moses. They did the exact same thing to the apostle Paul and Barnabas in Antioch of Syria. Acts 15, verses 1 and 2. Paul and Barnabas contended with these false teachers for a while, arguing back and forth. And it wasn't like a friendly debate. They had to preserve and protect this church in Syria, in Antioch, uh, Syrian Antioch, from these same men. And these same men were persecuting Paul and Barnabas for not following the law. And this led to that council meeting in in, in Jerusalem with the whole church, the ecumenical meeting, the first one in Acts 15, where they had to make a ruling and dismiss works of the law as part of our justification. What is Paul saying here in verse 12a? I'm just like you. I know what it feels like to be mistreated by law-addicted false teachers who despise our freedom in Christ. We have this in common, brothers. I get it. I entreat you. I beg you. Do not give in to them. Do not go under the law. Be like me and stay free. Stay free in Christ alone. This is what he's saying in this verse. After blasting the Galatians in verse 11, right? You know, I think I've labored over you in vain because you're going back to something that you left. And after speaking tenderly to them here in verse 12a, because this is tender talk. This is, this is a, it's coming from his heart and it's saturated in love and, and compassion, motherly compassion toward a child. After nailing them in verse 11 and then speaking tenderly to them in verse 12a, at 12a, doesn't that sound like us? We hit somebody with a bomb blast because they need to hear it, then we follow it with, but you know I love you. That's what Paul's doing here. It is. He nukes them in verse 11. He's like, I'm thinking that was a bit harsh. By the way, become like me and become a free man after nuking them. Now, what are they thinking about? The nuking in verse 11. And 
As I said last week, we don't know how they responded to that, but there were probably that some that may have left the church. This happens. After nuking and then speaking tenderly, now Paul wants to make sure that they know why he's concerned. And I think they already have a clue because they're giving themselves over to a false gospel, but he's going to clarify here in verses 12b and 14 and on from there. 12b, he says, you did, me, you did me no wrong. You haven't done anything wrong to me. And he says, you know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. So Paul is saying here that his concern over the Galatians, it has nothing to do with the way that he's been treated by them. And sometimes people mistreat us, and that's where we let them have it. And he is saying here, that is not at all why I'm, why I'm letting you have it. He makes this clear in verse 12b. He literally says, you did me no wrong. You've done nothing wrong to me. Verse 13, he reminds them of his terrible physical condition, you know, the condition that he was in, how he was sick when he first arrived in their community nearly two years earlier. He says, I had a, a bodily ailment. And, and this literally, according to what Paul says, this is what had driven him to their doorsteps. M more than just a sense of mission and, and taking the gospel to the ends of the earth, the guy got super sick and had to stop off. This is what he's saying. And by implication, Galatia may not have been on Paul and Barnabas's list of places to visit during the first missionary journey. But this bodily ailment that struck Paul, it seems to have forced them to have to stop there. Isn't that interesting? To me, it looks like a, an example of what we call compatibilism. Uh, it's an interesting doctrine that's hard to comprehend, but it really has to do with when man makes his plans, God guides his steps and accomplishes God's own will. Even with unbelieving men, God does this. And this is illustrated in Scripture, compatibilism in like Proverbs 16.9 and Genesis 5.20 and just all over Scripture we see compatibilism where man is aiming to do something and then God actually works out his will through that without man so often even knowing. This is the sovereignty of God on display in this text. Paul is headed in a direction, gets really sick, and has to stop off here. And this is exactly where God wants him. So how did Paul get sick? The sovereign God. Here's some malaria. Stop off. <laughs> Literally. This is how God works. He always accomplishes his will. Now, one thing that Paul does not do here is he does not identify his ailment and he does not identify it in any other letter. Some commentators suggest that it was a, a type of eye disease. He had problems with his eyes. And this is a view of many good commentators. MacArthur, again, here writes, eye disease was common in ancient times as it is uh, still today in underdeveloped countries. If Paul had an eye affliction, it could have been a condition of long standing, perhaps the thorn in his flesh. 
that was a messenger of Satan. Uh, the Lord allowed him to endure as a humbling reminder of God's own sufficient grace, right? 2 Corinthians 12, 7 and 9. You remember how he prayed for that to be taken several times? And God's reply each time was, my grace is sufficient. My power is made perfect in human weakness. Maybe his thorn wasn't guilt over persecuting the church, which seems irregular because Paul was a free man. Why would he have guilt? Maybe it was an eye issue. MacArthur goes on to say, because malaria sometimes attacks the optic nerve, causing loss of color recognition, atrophy, and even blindness, uh, Paul's affliction while in Galatia may have affected the way he saw as well as the way that he looked. What MacArthur is essentially saying is it sounds like it was malaria-induced vision loss. Because if you allow malaria to continue on, it can result in that because it destroys the eyes. He says the possibility of poor eyesight is substantiated by Paul's comment in the closing chapter of this book, Galatians, where Paul wrote, See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. Chapter 6, verse 11, Paul is literally saying, I've had, to write with I've had to write to you in all caps because that's how I can see. I'm not on a Facebook rant. He wasn't away. But I had to write to you with big letters so I could see my own writing. He usually had scribes and other people write his letters for him. He would dictate to them. He used dictation all the time, but here he writes with his own hand, and he has to do it in really, really big letters. These people got an all caps book. You know what all caps means. Somebody's fired up. But for him, it was just simply because he couldn't see the regular old writing. MacArthur says if he had limited vision, he would have likely used larger than normal letters in order to see what he was writing. End quote. Malaria and poor eyesight may have been Paul's bodily ailment. We don't know for sure, but we do know that he was sick and had to stop off in Galatia. And notice that the important detail at the end of verse 13. Paul was uh, being plagued by something, but it didn't stop his mission, did it? What does he say? Right? He's got probably an eyesight issue, and maybe it's even disfigured him in, in some ways because malaria can gunk up the eyes and make you pretty gross. This is how he arrives and he shows up. If I do that, I'm finding a bed and I'm quarantining. But what does Paul say at the end of 13? I preached the gospel to you. He doesn't stop. I can't see you, but you need to hear this truth. Literally, he sticks to the mission here. He sticks to the mission. It's a, a remarkable detail there. He was plagued by something here, something serious, and yet he preaches the gospel to them and even says it's because I was ill that's why I did it to you first that's why I preached to you firstly <clears throat> when uh, Paul was on house arrest under Roman guard guess what didn't stop his mission he expounded to them testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus both from the law of Moses and from the prophets Acts 28 16 to 28 Sickness and, and, and near-death experiences, being pulverized and beaten, almost stoned to death, having rocks thrown at him until he wasn't breathing. This, this happened in, in, I believe, Lystra. He, he went through all of these things, all of this travail, and yet it never stopped 
Paul's mission, it never stopped him from preaching the gospel. And now we fast forward to today. We've got Christians living in fear because of COVID. We distance, we isolate, we wear masks, we shut down our churches. This is normative today. Quite honestly, and I say this with all the love in my heart, we ought to be ashamed of ourselves for choosing fear over faith. We should. It's not to say that we shouldn't be concerned about the elderly and those who are, have preconditions in these things, but we have allowed that idea and that thinking to prevail upon us to the point of being inactive in the mission because of fear, ultimately. What a difference between us today and Paul of the first century, right? Wow, what a difference. In verse 14, Paul continues to reflect on his poor physical condition. He calls it a trial to you. My sickness was a trial to you, Galatians. This is what he says. Obviously, his malady must have been pretty serious because it had a literal effect on those around him. He could have been in bed for several days and weeks. If he had malaria, he would have been laid out for a little while because it gives you super high fever and you know, takes away all of your strength and energy. It wipes you out. And, and if he were bedridden for several days or weeks, if not a month or so, depending on how long this lasted, and we're not even talking about the long-term effects of it, because he had some kind of thorn later on, but regardless of that, being bedridden or infirmed at some level would have required that the Galatians care for him. Who knows, Barnabas was with him at this juncture when they planted this church. Maybe Barnabas was wiped out as well. If Paul had malaria, he would have been on his back. He would have had high fever and fatigue problems with his sight. If he had some kind of eye disease, then that means he couldn't see well, and the Galatians probably had to help him get around. Either way, Paul is telling us that his ailment was serious enough to cause a trial for them. Trial simply means to be put in a situation that is trying or that tests you. And Caring for a sick person will do this. Amen, wives? I got a boo-boo. Two weeks out, the husband. Right? I got a little sniffle. Now, when I had pneumonia, uh, it, it annihilated me. I was very, very sick with the pneumonia, and uh, I would say that it caused a trial for my wife, Rachel. If it wasn't the constant complaining about how bad I felt... It was the fact that as soon as I stood up, I fell back down because I had no energy. Now, she's already a good housewife, but now she has to play nurse, and she does not have that temperament, let me tell you. Mm, help yourself, I'm dying. I've told the story, I think, several times of when I had to go get my own NyQuil at 11 o'clock at night, and I 
because she was very tired and taking care of her kids who were younger at the time. And this is when I had pneumonia. And I was kind of coming out of it, so you can't really blame her too much. But she was like, hey, I'm exhausted too. I don't feel all that great. And can you go get your own NyQuil? And so I, I had no business being in CVS. I had my pajamas on and a blanket. I should have been at Walmart. So um, I once saw a person like that in Target, and I said, your store's about a half a mile. You're in the wrong store. I'm French. I'm offended. And, um, and I'm jacked up, and I literally, I, I, who's the guy in Charlie Brown that drags around the blanket? I'm Linus, but sick. And I, you know, I wrap myself up. I've got a low-grade fever. The only way I'm sleeping is to take a lot of stuff. And so I go down there and get my stuff, and I'm miserable, and I'm walking around, and I get my stuff. I come out. When I pulled in, there were three cars in the parking lot. When I walked out, there were no cars in the parking lot. Somebody stole my car. <laughs> and I yelled, you don't do this to people with pneumonia. I was ticked. And then so the beauty of it is she had to come get me. I said, you're going to have to get off your booty and get down here. My car's gone, and I'm about to yak. So, and I didn't have my cell phone on me. And at that point, I had like a first-generation iPhone, which weighed 96 pounds. I didn't have the strength to lift it. I had to use their phone at CVS, and uh, it was a disaster. But let me tell you, that illness created a, a trial for my wife at multiple levels. Have you cared for someone who's sick and not maybe just a, a husband? And we tend to, you know, amplify everything as husbands. You know, I, I always say, you know, I've had a couple kidney stones and it was at the same level as her giving birth. And that's a stupid thing to say because you spend the night on the couch. But, yeah, if I had a barn, I'd be in it. But... Um, you know, if you care for someone who's sick, a great illustration of this in such a, a positive way, and it's not that my experience wasn't positive. I understand my wife. It was stupid to ask her to go down there to begin with. Just don't ask. Just do it. But in any case, because she's got her own things, Jen caring for Kay is a great example. And, and I don't think that Jen would ever call that a trial. But it is trialsome when you have to care for somebody that's sick, especially when they're really, really sick and have been sick for years. It's very challenging. And Paul is simply saying, that's who I was when I first met you. I was a trial. I created a trial for you. I showed up jacked up. I'm sorry. You cared for me. You loved me, but I preached the gospel to you. Never pulled him off mission. His health caused a trial for the Galatians. And look at what he says in the text. He says, and yet you did not scorn or despise me. You received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. These people are something. The Greek word for scorn, and actually the Greek words for scorn and despise, they're, they're really difficult to pronounce, multiple syllables. I'm not even going to attempt it. But I can tell you basically what they mean used together in a sentence. They mean to treat with contempt. Paul is saying, 
despite the fact that when I came to you firstly and I was very, very ill and that created a trial for you, you had to care for me and take care of me, you did not treat me with contempt. You did not treat me with contempt. In fact, if you, if you really analyze the word behind scorn, it means to spit. And, and when I think of that, I mean, it's like to spit in contempt. And, and immediately what comes to mind here are the movies where somebody is so frustrated and angry with somebody spit in their face. Right? Or they're just like, I can't believe it's patooey. This is the thought. This is the thought here. You didn't spit in my eye. This is what he's saying. He is saying, my condition created a trial for you, but you did not treat me with contempt like others would do. Instead, you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. You treated me like you would treat Jesus, is what he's saying. And I think that the Galatians' response is, is really extraordinary when you consider how the ancients viewed sickness. Even in pagan cultures, unbelieving cultures, not just the Jewish culture, but in Gentile, non-Jewish culture, all of the cultures of Paul's day viewed illness as a judgment of God towards sin. Think of Job. Job did not sin, and yet he suffered travail. But what did his friends keep trying to convince him of? Obviously, you've sinned against God, and you need to make this right. It's a, they thought of illness and sickness as a form of divine judgment against sin. We think of Job. We think of, even in Jesus' day, fast forward several thousand years, in Jesus' own day, which is really Paul's day, uh, the disciples of Jesus thought a blind beggar was being punished for his or his own parents' sins. We see this in John 9, too. Why is this guy being punished with blindness? Is it because of his sin or because of the sins of his parents? This is the view in antiquity. And, and undoubtedly, the Galatians had their own silly superstitions like all other Gentiles. And yet here in the text, we find that when Paul comes to them ill, they are ultimately concerned with Paul's health and message. They treated him honorably. Why? Because they believed God had sent him. And they wanted to hear this gospel that he was preaching. Paul's bodily ailment had zero impact on the Galatians. They did not isolate. They did not distance. They did not mask up. They did not close down their homes. They welcomed Paul into their homes like Zacchaeus welcomed Jesus into his home with joy. Luke 19.6. After preaching only his second message in the Galatian city of Pisidian Antioch, the people there, these are, these are, these are uh, literally Galatian people in this city. After Paul preaches his second message there, what happens? These people began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, Acts 13.48. Obviously, what, what Paul is telling us here is that God was working on these people long before he ever arrived in Galatia. God was tilling and preparing the soil of the Galatians' hearts so they could and would joyfully receive the apostle and his apostolic message, the gospel. 
That's a work of God. And this is, this is what Paul remembers about the Galatians when he first came to them. These are his fondest memories of them, his happiest memories about them. He is not concerned about any of these things, their treatment of him. It's not even on his radar because they treated him like an angel of God, like Christ himself, and he was sick and created a trial. He's not concerned about any of these things. He is concerned about their current attitude toward him and the reason for that. Let's move to 15 and 16. Listen to what he says here, and this is where it gets heart-wrenching. He says, what then has become of your blessedness? He says, for I testify to you that, if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. And listen to what he says. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? Oh, what a switch here. When Paul first came to these people, he told them the truth, the gospel, and they embraced it with joy. But 18 months later, they were beginning to see Paul as an adversary. The Galatians had gone from, from honoring Paul as, as one who honors angels or the Lord himself and accepting his, his message, the gospel, his apostolic message, and, and caring for him to the point of sacrificial self-injury, right? It's a figure of speech. They would have given me, you would have given me your own eyes. He doesn't mean it literally, but that's the kind of love you had for me. I had a problem with my eyes, and you would have given me your own sight. They had gone from all of that to becoming his enemy for speaking the truth to them. What a switch. What a transition. And he literally refers to their original joyful attitude and acceptance of him and acceptance of his message. He refers to it as your blessedness. That was your blessedness. And what does he say? He says, what has become of it? Where did it go? I think MacArthur has an excellent paraphrase of 15 and 16. He says, this is what Paul is saying. From the beginning, you were satisfied and happy with me and, and happy with the message of grace I preached. What made you lose that satisfaction? Why have you turned against me and against the gospel of grace? That's right on point. That's what Paul is saying. And you know what? Paul, Paul understood why the transition had taken place, and he understood who was behind it. And he identifies the culprits in the next line, the very next line in verse 17. He says this, They, there they are, they, they, they make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you make, may make much of them. That word they, that's the culprits. Those are the ones that, that worked and worked and worked with this false gospel to change the entire dynamic in these churches and to change the attitudes of these faithful believers and friends of Paul against him. They are the Judaizers. That's the they. 
They were behind this transition. They were the culprits. Their false teachings and, and consistent attacks against Paul's credibility and message were successfully leading the Galatians astray and causing this change in attitude toward the apostle. Now, if somebody keeps hitting you with the same stuff about a person over time, you're going to begin to believe it. And that's what's happened here. Paul says, they, they make much of you. These Judaizers make much of you. And you know why and when they make much of the Galatians, these Judaizers? They do it when the Galatians do what they say. They make much of the Galatians when the Galatians follow their instructions and, and submit to the law, go under the Mosaic law. They, they celebrate. It's a, there's a celebratory connotation here. They celebrate the Galatians when the Galatians get circumcised and, and follow the, the Jewish calendar, religious calendar, right? Paul says in the previous text, you, you, you observe days and weeks and months and seasons and years. What is he saying? You have given yourself over to the Jewish calendar of religion. And they make much of you because you do that. They make much of the Galatians. They, they celebrate the Galatians when the Galatians turn against the apostle and reject the apostolic message, the gospel of grace. This is what cult leaders do. They make much of people for a while, and then they stop doing that after a while because it's hard to keep up. They love bomb you. You know that phrase if you know anything about charismatic circles. And I'm not damning all charismatics. I'm just simply saying there is a strategy in the more pervasive and lethal forms of charismania. And they will love you like you've never been loved to get you in. They will make much of you. Cults make much of people until they get them under their power and control. And then they just exploit and use. And that's exactly what Paul is pointing out here. And notice the warning that Paul adds. He doesn't just say they make much of you and leave it there. He says, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you make much of them. The Judaizer's goal was to, to shut out the Galatians from God's grace and, and gain recognition and acceptance for themselves. Now, that's a cult leader. That's what cult leaders do. Their true motivation, according to chapter 6, verse 12, the true motivation of the, of the, of the Judaizers was to make a good showing in the flesh. Why? To avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. You know, a couple chapters later, Paul goes on to expose their real MO, why they're doing what they do, why they make much of you, what their real purpose and motivation is behind all of this false gospel and what they're trying to lure you into. I think one of the reasons why a great many quote-unquote Christians eventually add works of the law or other worldly principles to their beliefs is because they are seeking to avoid persecution, just as the Judaizers. The Judaizers may have started out pretty sound and then got hammered for following Christ and then started adding works of the law to lighten the blow. Let me tell you something right now. 
If you preach the truth, you will make enemies. You will. The truth divides. Truth from error. People are always griping about how doctrine divides. When it divides, it's doing its job. It's supposed to be divisive. How we handle it is a whole other story. If you preach the truth, you will make enemies. This is what Paul says in verse 16. Yet if you want to avoid making enemies while still preaching something, you're going to have to modify the message. Right? You're going to have to add things to the gospel or subtract things from the gospel. You want to avoid making enemies with certain groups of people and you can just add gay marriage. You want to avoid making enemies, you can add about 150 genders. I think that's where we're at on the scale now. You want to not make enemies but preach something there, you can just add social justice or CRT, critical race theory, wokeness, name it, pick your poison. Just add those things that are popular in the world today and in our country today and you will not make enemies. Add women elders to your church. Add Arminianism. Add easy believism. Subtract sin. Subtract repentance. Subtract hell. We need to get back to preaching what the Bible says about these things and let God sort out the enemies and the friends and everything else. But if you want to avoid making enemies and still be in the church somehow or at least some type of expression of the church and really it's a false church and you don't want to offend or or rub anyone wrong or make enemies or tick people off then you're gonna have to take the things out of the truth that are offensive you're gonna have to preach a different truth that's what has to happen You're going to have to preach that Jesus is merely a good idea at massive events, which I actually saw one time. It blew my mind. Jesus was, was, was proclaimed as a good idea at a massive event. What an opportunity to preach Christ crucified for worthless sinners like us. And, and he was cast and, and projected and proclaimed as a, he's a pretty good idea. Instead of being declared as the only Savior. You know that salvation is found in no one else. There is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved, Acts 4.12. Instead of saying that, it was, he's a good idea. And, and ultimately, what's happening here in the text, I don't want to get lost and go down a cultural wormhole, but what's happening here is Paul is exposing the true M.O. of the Judaizers, and it was to avoid persecution. So they were adding works of the law to the message, and that kept them out of hot water with other Jews. And we Gentiles doing it our own ways. We leave things out that we should proclaim. We add things in there that should, are not be, should never be added. We add and subtract from the Word of God. Very dangerous. They added works to justification, to avoid being persecuted by other Jews. And they were teaching the Galatians to follow their poor and terrible example. 
and they made much of the Galatians when the Galatians complied and went along with it. They made much of the Galatians when the, when the Galatians came back around and said, wow, Judaizers, you were so helpful when the Galatians gave the Judaizers accolades and praise for their wisdom. Well, you told me that if I just adjust the message a little bit, I won't get hammered for it anymore. And I tell you what, Bill, I've been trying that, Bill the Judaizer, I've been trying that, and guess what? I've been able to preach Christ, and I haven't suffered one lash. Tragic. Utterly tragic. Move to verses 18 and 19. Paul continues and he says, It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Notice the punctuation. Fat exclamation point. After literally exposing the Judaizers' false flattery and true motive, Paul basically says there's nothing wrong with being made much of if it's for a good purpose. This is always good. Give praise when praise is due. And when is praise due? When someone does the word. He was literally pointing to how he had made much of the Galatians in the past when he first came to them. Uh, when he first came to Galatia, and, and Paul is talking about how he was making much of them right here at this very moment. And the difference between Paul making much of them and the Judaizers is that the Judaizers were doing it for the wrong reasons. Self-preservation, self-exaltation. Paul's doing it because he loves them. There's the difference. You make much of someone because you love them, not because you have a hidden M.O., because you want to get something from them or try to control them. This is what Paul's saying. There's a huge difference between being made much of for the wrong reasons, the Judaizers, and being made much of for the right reasons, me loving you as Christ loves you. Though he would admit that he falls short. Certainly what he aims for. Paul was motivated by sincere love for these people. He had made much of them, much of the Galatians, because he earnestly loved them. The Judaizers made much of the Galatians because of self-interest, the opposite of love. You're not actually loving somebody rightly in a truly Christian way if your M.O. is what can I get from them. Maybe I'll just love my wife a, a little bit more tonight so she'll stop nagging me. Well, that's not love. And neither is the nagging, by the way. And this is the difference here between giving praise where you should. Paul uses a simile in verse 19 to show the Galatians the depth of his love. He calls them my little children and then describes his anguish and most earnest desire for them. He is like a mother who wants her baby to grow. He wants the Galatians to go from being baby Christians, childbirth, to mature manhood or womanhood. Christ formed in you. This is what he wants for them. And this should be the desire of, of every Christian parent for their children. This should be the desire of every faithful pastor elder 
including me. To see Christ formed in every Christian under our care. To see them come to mature manhood or womanhood in Christ. Every pastor, elder will experience also the the anguish of childbirth, having to go back to square one, back to the very basics with people that we thought were further along or with people that that displayed even the fruits of the Spirit and, and service and all of these. They had all of these earmarks and signs and characteristics of a true believer, and then they literally blew their life and faith apart through some crazy, destructive sin, adultery or something. At that point, us pastor elders feel like we need to go back to the anguish of childbirth. And it is an anguish. This is what Paul is saying. And now we come to verse 20. He says, I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Paul's desire was to deal more directly with these issues and to be there in person. He hardly knew what more to say or you know, even how to say it because he was so perplexed about them. He could not understand how they could have uh, been taught the, the, gospel, the gospel so well and then, and, and then seemingly believed it so genuinely and then to have appeared to it here at this juncture uh, within two years to have forsaken it so quickly. The Greek verb behind perplexed is aporeo and it means to be at your wit's end with someone. Literal meaning. That's the Greek meaning. Paul is saying, I am at my wit's end with you. I'm not sure I can do much more through a letter. I wish I could be with you and possibly change my tone. This is what he's saying here in this last verse. He's at his wit's end with them. Because of their embracing of the gospel and living out the gospel and then being deceived and forsaking the gospel. You people are driving me to the end of my rope, is what he says. And he understands that there is power in a letter. There is power in writing to someone. And although whenever you write to someone, whether it be a text or an email, they can't see your face. They can't Uh, determine your inflection. They don't know what the heart is behind it. And 99% of the time, they interpret what you're saying as cruelty when, in fact, you have all the love in your heart that you could ever have. Right? How many times have you sent that text and then they came back and said, I cannot believe what you've said. You couldn't be more hateful. And I'm like, I was not being hateful. I was being stupid for not calling you for not sitting across from you at Starbucks and pulling our masks down so you can see my chins, I mean my mouth. (laughs) Seriously. I have sent more texts and emails and I have done verbal conversation and that has not been profitable many times. 
And I don't think that we would ever want to say that this letter that he wrote to them was unprofitable. This is the word of God. We need to be careful. But there is a difference in what you write to people and what they see and hear you saying to their faces. And Paul is saying, I, I, I think I could probably change my tone. I would sound a little differently if I was before you. But believe me, Paul would not shy away from reality or the truth. He is at his wit's end with them because of what they're doing, the way they're treating him, the way they're abandoning the true gospel. And let me tell you something right now. If you are a pastor elder, if you are in the mission field, are you, if you are just an evangelist, if you're just a mom at home with your babies and your kids, if, you're a, if you share the gospel with your neighbors or anything like that, it, the potential to get to your wit's end with people when they keep fronting you and getting before you and causing trouble and rejection and all it's it's just so high it's so great it can happen like i said if you preach the truth you'll make enemies and 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 paul i think is in a way anticipating what their response will be to this letter when it lands and it's probably not going to be good Especially when he's away and can't be with them and they can't see his face, they can't feel his embrace, but the Judaizers are there to counter. They're hugging. They're giving holy kisses on the cheek. Oh, don't listen to him. He's just ticked off and mean and he's not a good, el he's not a good pastor elder. He's a terrible apostle. The regular apostles don't even acknowledge him as an apostle. Have you guys not read the letter to the Corinthians? They're there to show all the love, all that cultish love. Paul's saying, I wish I was there with you. It was his greatest desire at this moment. Verses 12 through 20, this is Paul's impassioned plea. He passionately pleaded, really begged the Galatians to be like him, a free man in Christ. He passionately pleaded with the Galatians to regain their blessedness by being satisfied and, 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 and joyful and happy with him and with his message, the gospel of grace. Regain that blessedness. Where is your charity and love? Where is your hospitality? Do you know what legalism going to the law does? It destroys love in the church. It makes people fanatical about obeying it, and it turns them against each other. It makes them critical of others. It makes them judgmental. Look at Bill over there. He can't follow it. If he, he, I don't think he has the Holy Spirit. It makes people mean. The law makes people mean. It's intended to turn us to Christ. Get your blessedness back, church. Come back to the true gospel. He passionately pleaded with the Galatians to recognize the false flattery and true motive of the Judaizers, self-preservation, self-exaltation. They're only loving you because they want something from you. And meanwhile, they want to shut you out of the grace of God. They want to shut you out of the kingdom of God. And lastly, Paul passionately pleaded with the Galatians to know his love, which was genuine and sincere, like that of a mother with her children, and like that of a faithful pastor who desires to see Christ formed in the people he cares for and who will come to their aid, right, come to their assistance, travel a distance, do whatever is necessary to come and help them, 
even when they are the cause of his perplexity, even when they are the ones who are driving him to the end of his rope, to his wits end, he will come because he comes for Christ. That's the text. <laughs>